So don't look at my notes, Stephen. He's looking at my notes. Poaching Sorry. my notes. Sorry. Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 15 through 17. This is the second half of our discussion on the final chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Be sure to catch up on part one before listening to this episode. So after the battle is won, Aslan comes in, you know, kills the witch, boom, bang, done. And then they see that Edmund has been wounded when Mm. he tried to get to the witch. This is a very heart-wrenching part of the story. I Mm -hmm. always felt like this was such a, when I was a child, this was like such a good twist at the end. It always got me like, oh my gosh, you know, he's finally come around. He's really transformed to really be brave enough to confront the witch like that. I have a quote here. Aslan tells Lucy to give him the cordial and she gives it to him and she's waiting to see if he's going to get better and Aslan tells her there are other people wounded said Aslan while she was still looking eagerly into Edmund's pale face and wondering if the cordial would have any result yes I know said Lucy crossly wait a minute Mm. daughter of Eve said Aslan in a graver voice others also are at the point of death must more people die for Edmund I feel like this is such an interesting moment that yeah. Lewis is really trying to say something significant. I know that when I was a child, I always kind of felt bad for Lucy. Like, I felt like I was kind of on her side of like, come on, Aslan, this is her brother. Just yeah. like, just a few more seconds, yeah. dude. Why are you so harsh? What do you think Lewis is trying to say through this reprimand? It shows, I think, that Aslan is not just the one who encourages and plays with and brings restoration for Lucy. He also challenges her. He's not just the best friend. He's, he's, he's master and lord of all Narnia, too. And she needs to learn and grow and be able to listen to him. And it's not comfortable for her. And you can feel for Lucy, and that's yeah. understandable. But she needs, she needs to learn to be able to show compassion for others and not just for Edmund yeah that really shows her growing into being more selfless as well Aslan calls her out and challenges her I still kind of feel bad for her though yeah and I think and I think you should yeah that's that's how it goes you know what I I love as you said it is such a great moment when Edmund you know goes up and and breaks the witch's wand it's interesting how it's portrayed in the book, though. So it's a very, it's a very important development in the character of Edmund, as you said. He's facing, you know, the the temptation that used to hold him captive, and he's saying, "Okay, I'm a new person now. We're yeah. no more of this." So that's important for the character of Edmund, and it makes sense that film adaptations kind of dwell on that. But in mm-hmm. the book, we don't see the scene play out directly in front of us. No, we hear about it. Yeah. From Peter. From Peter. From Peter. Because that, it's not just an important moment for Edmund. The fact that Peter tells the story is an important moment for Peter. 
Oh my gosh, yeah. That's huge character development in their relationship. It shows how far that they've come together. He praises Edmund. He says, Aslan, we couldn't have done it without him. Yeah. He doesn't try to take all the glory for himself. He acknowledges what Edmund did. And especially shows even just how this battle has maybe transformed him even into more of a king because it even says that Lucy could see something graver in his face. Mm, Yeah. But, you know, Edmund is transformed, and I have another quote that (laughs) describes it. It says, When at least Lucy was free to come back to Edmund, she found him standing on his feet, not only healed of his wounds, but looking better than she had seen him look, oh, for ages. Hmm. In fact, ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong, he Hmm. had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. So first of all, we discover what maybe a little backstory into what made Edmund so horrid, which I think is actually a question we asked a few episodes back. Like what was different about Edmund that made him so bitter to the world? Yeah. There's this school that he went to. Like now I want to read a prequel about what happened there. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, C.S. Lewis himself had some bad school experiences. He did. Yeah, he, you can read about it in Surprised by Joy. In in the years that I suppose would be equivalent to like maybe senior high or thereabouts, he he was he was part of this school where there was this like rigid hierarchy, of uh, kind of social hierarchy where you know people telling other people what to do. You know, you're you're nobody. I'm somebody, and all sorts of just really other terrible things that followed from that and i suppose you can read about that yourself in surprised by joy lewis's attitude towards the bad influences that school can have they come out in other places in the chronicles of narnia too well in the silver chair yeah um it's also funny uh, at, at the end of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, one of the things that the, that the four kings and queens do is they save poor little satyrs and fawns from being sent to school. They're liberated, is the word that he uses. I didn't notice that this yeah. time. That's hilarious. It is. Wow. Which is funny coming from a professor. That is so interesting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm sure that Lewis, as probably as a professor, had strong opinions about how education yeah. was done in his day and what he yeah. saw there. Yeah, man. Hot takes, Lewis. Man. Well, going back a little bit to this quote I read about Edmund and his transformation, it seems like when he died and then when he was healed again, he had a transformation as well. Like he was transformed before by Aslan, but it seemed like when he really was brave and sacrificed himself like that, there was something different, so much more different about him. Hmm. It's funny you say that because at first I thought that was just the cordial. Right. But it sounds like you're saying it was his decisive act of overcoming the temptation and seduction of the witch. I would argue that, yeah. That's a good observation. That was his fine. This was like his face off with the witch. Like this was his final decision of like, no, I am on this side now. And I think from here on out, honestly, I am Team Edmund over Team Peter. Hmm. Really? Yeah. So like there's as that. a crush, as a Narnia crush. Well, that is to be determined, friends. Okay. So stay tuned. But you know, you're here for the development of it in real time. Wow. This is this is exciting hot news right yeah. here. I have to say, Queen Lucy the Valiant does seem 
like a pretty cool gal. <laughs> Just saying. <clears throat> yeah, Georgie Henley, come on. You haven't contacted us yet. What's up with that? <laughs> Gotta get not, on not, this. Not, not just Georgie Henley, too, honestly. Just Lucy just herself. Lucy, Lucy yeah. the Valiant, Queen Lucy the Valiant. She was always gay and golden-haired. She, it, It's so interesting to look at her development, especially gets she gets older in Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Just as a character, she's so mm. interesting. She's very close to Aslan. And to yeah, see that is. play out and to see her grow and to learn to trust is fascinating yeah. and captivating. yeah. We'll have to talk about that more in the future. I think that is why Lucy is my favorite character in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Rightly so. Not Edmund, then. Lucy? No. Team Lucy? This is different. Or it's not Steven. a competition between them? No, Lucy's Edmund a girl. Lucy. I resonate with Lucy. Okay. Edmund is... A potential love interest. No! <laughs> oh my gosh. Can we move on now? Sure. Okay. Thank you. So next is, what, the coronation? Yeah, well, we already touched a little bit on Queen Lucy the Valiant, so let's dive into the coronation mm-hmm. here. There is King Peter the Magnificent, King Edmund the Just, Queen Susan the Gentle. The and, Gentle, yep. And Queen Lucy the Valiant. So this is a little planet Narnia in here, isn't it? The names oh, yes. of the kings and queens. Do you want to describe that? Well, all of these names are very appropriate to kings and queens. They're very royal, and they bring out different aspects of royalty. And since Jupiter is the planet associated with royalty, it makes sense that they would kind of bring out different aspects of what that means. But very specifically, we see in Lewis's poem about the planet Jupiter, which some of you might remember from our Planet Narnia episode, one of the things that he said was just and gentle yeah. are Job's children. And That's their helms Edmund of nations. and Susan right yeah. there. That's Edmund and Susan, so that covers half of it. Yep. Lion-hearted as well are Job's children. That, that corresponds very well with Valiant, I think. Mm. And it makes a lot of sense for Lucy. Peter is lion-hearted, I think, as well in his yeah. own way, but th- specifically lion-hearted comes out as val- valiance. For Peter, the magnificent, the magnif- the, just the word magnificent does have a very royal sound to it, but there's, I think there's even a tighter association there than that. Royalty and, and jovial royalty is associated with this kind of an old Aristotle word that's used sometimes, magnanimity. That's a big word. Largeness of soul, Mm. kind of confidence, nobility, that kind of thing. It is frequently mistranslated and was mistranslated by Edmund Spencer, um, the the poet from the 16th century, as magnificence. Okay. Which is a little bit more like generosity. Yeah. Or doing, you know, lavish, magnificent, you know, things. I think... Probably Lewis just figured that most kids don't know the word magnanimous, so he just used the word magnificent, and it just kind of sounds royal anyway. It does. Magnificence, justice, gentleness, and and valor are all bringing out different aspects of what it means to be a king or queen. Yeah. I think they they do that quite nicely there. And, of course, you know, at the coronation, there's you can tell that Narnia has been fully restored. There's that theme coming up again, restoration. There's this quote mm-hmm. that says, and that night there was a great feast in Caraparavel. Jollification. And revelry and dancing and gold 
gold, mm-hmm. flashed and wine flowed and answering to the music inside, but stranger, sweeter, and more piercing come the music of the sea people. Mm. So yeah, there's really that picture that Mr. Tumnus painted all the way back in the beginning of the book when he was describing old Narnia to Lucy. You can tell it's just fully been restored again. The reference to the sea people is so captivating and it interesting. It is, yeah. I love how they included the mermaids in the Disney Walden Media movie of that. Just briefly, yeah. just at the beginning. But I, it's, it's almost as if there's this, um, like he's just evoking, you know, mystery. Yeah. Or something. And the vastness of the sea... Just the mm. sense of the bigness of it that's yeah. right next to Cara Paravel. Yeah. It, and the mystery of the of the voices of the sea people. There's this kind of sweet, you know, mysterious thing drawing you, like in the song Rainbow Connections. Is this yes. the sweet song that calls the young sailors? It's, it's like he's trying to evoke that somehow. Mm. One of my top quotes actually comes from, from this same section where it says... How well, about you save it? I'll save it for my top. Oh, I'll save it for my top quotes then. Save it. Save. All right. Hold your horses. Save it, brother. So the children wonder where Aslan is at the coronation. And Mr. Beaver said that he'll be coming and going, Mr. Beaver said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. Hmm. I feel like Lewis is trying to say something about the nature of God with this. Much what he's been saying all the way along, I think, but this really wraps it up and encapsulates it, it in an effective way. Yeah. Here at the conclusion of the book. That you can't tie him down. I wonder if I wonder if you could even say, as as Lewis has said himself in Surprised by Joy, for example, you can't force a religious experience. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say. That was something that he himself tried to do when he was a little boy growing up. But you can't do that. And that's okay. Right. Because that's just the nature of it. It comes when you're not looking for it. Exactly. Now, let's just... That's what the professor said. That's what the professor says at the end. We're jumping around a bit here. We are jumping around But we can transition to that, maybe. Are we ready to transition to that final bit? Let's do it, and then we'll backtrack a little bit because I have something else I want to say. All right. But let's read this quote. So essentially, the children live happily ever after, pretty much, in Narnia, and they get back into the real world, which we'll discuss in a little bit. But the professor... They silence the busybodies. They sign what it says. That's what it says. In their there. rain. Yeah, and they and they liberate the fawns from school. Oh yes, very important to mention again. So when they get back into the real world, they try to explain to the professor what happened. And there's this wonderful quote that just ends the whole book of this one-sided. Com- they show just one side of the conversation with the professor, and he says, "Actually, Stephen, do you want to read it in your professor voice? My I professor feel like voice. you'd be good at that." Let's see if I can do a professor voice. Eh, what's that? Yes, of course, you'll get back into Narnia someday. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But don't try going the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. Keep your eyes open. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? And that's how the whole book ends, and I love that it ends on that, like, disgruntled 
professor vibe, you know? I just love that. Here we get more of the hot take on the school system. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but okay, what I loved about this quote is that there seemed to be a bit of the surprised by joy in like how to get back to Narnia. Like it'll come hmm. when you're not looking for it. That reminded hmm. me of the surprised by joy of like, joy comes when you're not looking for it in those hidden places. Lewis's experiences of, yeah, that, that technical term joy for that flash of a sense of transcendence or a, or an undefined yeah, desire for something exactly. bigger. Yeah, I just, yeah, I never that noticed sense. that before. That's good. Yeah. Right, that's a good observation. So can we, can we backtrack just a little bit to how the children got back into our world? Let's do it. Okay. We meet middle-aged chubby Mr. Tumnus, by the way. Such a funny picture. I don't think I, I had that in my head before. I love it. But first of all, I love that Mr. Tumnus just lives happily ever after with them and They're like is friends. one of their counselors. Yeah. It's great. But wasn't he like, oh yeah, you you should probably go after the stag. I forgot exactly what he says. He said he gave them news that the white stag had yes. once again been seen in those parts. Okay. So they go chasing after the white stag. Mm-hmm. And the white stag is what eventually leads them to the lamppost, which leads them back into the wardrobe, into our world. Mm-hmm. I did a little research on our Ooh. good friend Wikipedia. Yay. I found that the white stag is often associated with adventure. Okay. And in Celtic culture and mythology, the white stag is a messenger from the other world. Hmm. As well as ah. Hungarian mythology, Hunting a stag led to a new country. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? So that's ushered, exactly what happens it here. It is exactly what happens wow. here. They, it ushers them into our country. Connections. Yes. Oh, that's good. I think I may have hinted at earlier there's a connection with the theme of planet Narnia because hunting is also associated with the planet Jupiter. From kind of the rena- Renaissance or Baroque period, there's, um, there's, there's actually a woodcut illustration that's included in in ward's book planet narnia he includes Mm. a a photo of it but it's it's titled jupiter and it has various scenes it has the pope crowning a king it has a king sitting in judgment over his subjects yeah and uh it has i think it may have a feast in there as well and in the background is a hunt going on wow all of these are things associated with Jupiter jupiter and kingship yes so just as a side note when they're all the grown-up children, the kings and queens of Narnia are around the lamppost. They talk like old England and they call like, each other's siblings like, come hither, my good sir. Yes, madam, I have no doubt that we shall find adventure, whatever we may do, you know, <laughs> yes, or something like yes, that. Yes, good sir. I think we should start talking like this, Stephen. And call each other. I should call you madam. Yes, good sir. Well, then let us continue. It goes, it, it suits well for one who has noble bearing and appreciates one's own sense of royalty. And I think we should embark on the journey of top quotes. And let us hence, for nothing would hold me back from so great an adventure. <laughs> Pray, what have you to say? To top quotes, top we quotes. need an improvised theme song for our top quotes. Oh, that was good. Oh, thank you. All right, Stephen, go for it. What's one of your top quotes? Well, here's my first top quote. This one is from right around the time of the coronation, talking about Care Paravel. It says, 
The castle of Caraparavel on its little hill towered up above them. Before them were the sands, with rocks and little pools of salt water and seaweed and the smell of the sea and long miles of bluish-green waves breaking forever and ever on the beach. And oh, the cry of the seagulls. Have you heard it? Can you remember? It's so beautiful. It sounds like a poem or something. It's so exuberant. Yeah. Surprisingly exuberant for just, you know, a picture there. It's almost like like he's he's hinting at something more. And maybe that's reading too much into it. I don't know. But maybe it's just there's something about the the sea and he's trying to bring you into that sensory experience. It's it's gesturing towards some kind of, you know, that bigness. Yeah. Like I said earlier, grandeur maybe even transcendence i don't know and we asks like have you heard it can you remember i just want to say out loud yes yes i have i know yeah. yeah it draws you in it draws you in if nothing else it's a beautiful description now one of my quotes is not so beautiful and lively what do you have this is when lucy and susan have been crying over aslan when he is killed yeah and Lewis takes a moment like he does in so many moments in the book to speak to the reader and he says I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night but if you have been if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness you feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again at any rate, that was how it felt to these two. This is such a very real description of grief. It's grave and mature. You can tell this yeah. is coming from experience from Lewis. Mm -hmm. I think maybe at this point he's lost his mother. Is that correct? At an early age, yeah. yes. So he knows what that feeling is, especially that description of there comes this sort of quietness like never nothing is going to happen again that really shook me and touched me very deeply yeah I, I you know you wonder how many children will be able to fully understand and appreciate that but that's okay yeah there's there's something mature about it and it, there's it's that true to life kind of human quality that I think is, is. is part of what's so attractive about the Chronicles of Narnia. It is. The jollification is balanced with gravity. Yes. It's a ballast on the other end too. It's not all not all roses and lollipops. I think that what that's part of what makes this book so incredible that it has such depth and such contrast between the dark and the good. Do you have another quote? Just the one that I already mentioned talking about Aslan playing with Susan and Lucy after he comes back to life. Yeah, read it. It was such a romp as no one ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy never white made up her mind. I love that. Do you have any more? <laughs> I do. I have one more quote. This is when Aslan shows up to the battle. Then with a roar that shook all Narnia from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. Lucy saw her face lifted toward him for one second with an expression of terror and amazement. I think this quote just mm. encapsulates so well the 
power and force in this one little second that completely changes the course of the entire book but i also especially love the description of his roar that it shook all of narnia from the western lamppost mm. which i love because i mean that's what this podcast beyond the lamppost beyond the lamppost to the shores of the great eastern sea it just also describes his all-encompassing power as well so we're saying goodbye to the lion the witch and the wardrobe and it's been so interesting rereading it again now that i am a young adult because i've seen how my view of god was shaped as a child and then that is impacting directly how i'm continuing to reshape my view of god right now like i feel like it's really important to go back and and remember how you learned about God and Mm. how God met you as a child. I think that's so important for shaping your present relationship with him. Absolutely. That's good. Yeah, I I would have to say as well, if I were to summarize how have the Chronicles of Narnia affected me and specifically how's the line, the witch and the wardrobe affected me, I would say, number one, my view of of Aslan, my view of God, as wild as as transcendent, as something that can't be captured yeah. by by our categories. I think that has given me the permission to question things that I've been taught yeah. while still pursuing while still pursuing God. Yeah. I was actually just talking to someone about this earlier today, um, Pastor Ben. Shout out. Shout out, <laughs> yay, Pastor Ben. Um, about about really how in, in the life of, of someone like me, you know, who grew up in a Christian household, for anyone like that, there comes a point where you decide whether or not you want to retain that faith as yeah. your own. Mm-hmm. And even if you do retain it, there might be things that change, and there certainly have been for me. It's, yeah. it's been a journey. Yeah. There have been a lot of questions and doubts along the way, but the thing that set me on a path and a trajectory where I thought that those questions were worth engaging and I thought that this was something worth pursuing and that faith might be something worth holding on to, be something meaningful and more than just an arbitrary set of rules. The Chronicles of Narnia did that for me. I that's think that's good. really what set me on that path. He's it wasn't the end of the journey, but it was it was the beginning. I wouldn't have engaged with the questions the same way that I did mm. if it hadn't been for the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I had to see that the gospel was beautiful before I could wrestle with the question of whether or not it was true. Yeah. And that's what motivated me to do so. Yeah. So the view of Aslan, I think the trajectory of wrestling, which is closely related. And then um, I think I think number three, just seeing just the, the bigness. It's the bigness, kind of the bigness of the sea. The idea of that, that grandeur, that meaning, drawing you into that feeling. Mm. Of, of something something more something here, more. something grand, some yeah. kind of mission, some kind of call. That was big. I think, you know, this is the official statement of Shannon Reed that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Ah. It is revealed, friends. It is now revealed. We know what your favorite is. It is. Stephen asked me this a while ago, and I was like, I'm not going to tell you. Mm. But now I'm telling you, it is the only book in the Chronicles of Narnia that is associated with Jupiter. And that is why it is my favorite. You like Jupiter. Well, you know. The themes of Jupiter. The themes of Jupiter 
the vibrance of life that is Mm. in it the restoration Mm -hmm. of all things speaks so deeply to my soul yes and the restoration of all things that is really the key that is the central theme of this book honestly and that is a very important theme in my life as well i think that's why i resonate so closely with this but i Mm. guess you know we're just gonna have to keep listening to find out what your favorite book is unless it's lion the witch in the wardrobe and you want to tell us now i think this is a conversation for another day oh listeners stay tuned shall we take a break for telegrams okay steven tell us what telegrams do we have caleb from illinois asked a question and this question is about the planet Narnia episode. So Caleb wants to know if each of the Chronicles of Narnia is based on one of the seven planets, why aren't they in order? This is a very good, valid question. Yeah, I'm glad so he asked it. Why isn't it like, okay, moving out from the Earth or moving into the Earth or something right. like that, like an order of their, of their spatial proximity? Yeah, that is a good question. I think the first answer to that that I would give would be Lewis actually didn't know beforehand that he was going to write seven books. Do you think he was consciously associating Jupiter with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I think so. Oh, okay. I think there are enough things in there that would suggest that. I'm sure he didn't have to try terribly hard. I'm sure it probably came naturally to him. But um, Jupiter was his favorite planet. That makes sense. As we know, in contrast with Saturn which I suppose must have been his least favorite planet. But yeah, it makes sense that he would do Jupiter first. And the others, I imagine that the others are just kind of kind of going along with what would fit best with the plot for the story as well. It's not like there's a full scheme worked out. Yeah. And when you think about it, when once you understand that the planet Narnia schema isn't a secret code like, oh, this is the real meaning. He wrote seven books because he actually wants yeah. to tell something about the yeah. planets. Once you stop thinking about that and start thinking of it more as a literary device or a vibe, then it makes more sense that they might not be in order. Yeah. So that's my answer to that. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah, thank you, Caleb. That was such a good question. If you guys have questions or insights or anecdotes, write us at beyondthelamppostpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message us on our Facebook page at Beyond the Lamppost. And if you want, you can leave us a review, including how and why Narnia is important to you, and we might just share it on the podcast. That would be very helpful to help other people find the podcast as well, and we'd just love to hear from you. So what are we doing next time? So, Stephen, next time we will be watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Disney version from 2005. We'll be discussing it. Wow. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. And remember. The smell of the waves and the seaweed. The sound of the surf breaking forever and ever on the beach. And oh, the cry of the seagulls. Have you heard it? Can Can you you remember? remember? (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Check out more of his music at jacobparada.com.